This is The Global Custodian. There's always a FinReg Angle podcast keeping you up to date with the latest developments in financial regulation. Hello and welcome to episode four of There's Always a FinReg Angle. I'm John Watkins, editor of Global Custodian, and I'm joined virtually, as always, by a cast of FinReg experts, Joe Parsons, Sean Tuffy, and Virginia O'Shea. Welcome back, everyone. Hi there. Afternoon. Afternoon. Hi, John. I'm quite flattered as well that you're now referred to me as a FinReg expert uh, in your intro. (laughs) You've, you've evolved from that first episode. We've come a long way. You have, yes. That's it. You're uh, branded alongside uh, Sean and Virginie, the, uh, the notorious thing at Quinbreg experts. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, um, yeah, welcome back, everyone. And uh, yeah, we have got a lot to discuss today, including our main discussion points around this notion of uh, a new normal, I say in inverted commas, uh, and whether the COVID-19 pandemic is going to force regulators to modernise. Uh, we've got some news bites, some cool updates, and uh, Joe and Sean, sounds like you've got to uh, settle an argument about whether journalism is a dead in- industry or not. Yeah, this is a, a bone I have to pick with you, I'm afraid, Sean. I saw your tweets uh, earlier today saying that journalism is a doomed industry. Would you, would you care to elaborate on that, please? Well, it was just more, uh, I mean, again, let's not take tweets too seriously here, but it was more <laughs> just an observation that uh, as long as uh, my entire adult life, journalism has been quote-unquote, a dying industry. So I just find it fascinating that for 20-something years, people continue to enter into a, an industry that's dying, allegedly dying. I mean, it'd be interesting to know, you know, uh, well, how journalism evolves, I reckon, after after this uh, this sort of new normal, as, as, as John mentioned there. We've gone about, you know, our ways of, of producing content and news and sort of trying to embrace it as much as possible. But it'd be interesting to know, you know, is... Will will this sort of revive maybe some some areas of journalism? Yeah, I think. I mean, honestly, like kidding aside, I think. I mean, not all the way aside, but kidding aside, that <laughs> I think. Um, I think the real challenge, obviously, for journalism in a lot of industries is how old model models need to change, right? So I've sort of jokingly before said that you know print media, print press, uh, such as the newspapers was essentially content marketing for classified ads and uh, local sales circulars in the 20th century. So I think it's just how do you fund journalism in the future and what, is, what do the new models look like? It's probably a more accurate way way to put put it than the industry is doomed. <laughs> you kind of want to avoid pay for play too often, I suppose. And, and in an era of fake news, oh God, I hate that term. Um, <laughs> I can understand that some journalists and most journalists actually probably feel quite affronted by um, that criticism that everything they're saying is fake and they've been questioned for no apparent reason. But I think that's 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 part of it. You know, it's trying to establish truth. <laughs> it's tough in this market because there's so much misinformation going around, even in capital markets and FinReg. There's rumours and all these kinds of things that fly around and, and sometimes you can be misled quite easily. I guess it, I guess it comes down to, to where journalism adds value. And this is that sort of sifting through that, that fake news, and, and then you know, what what can journalism produce to for its readers and, and and for maybe a wider community? Absolutely, and there are journalism ethics. I know there's that, that I was certainly trained in them when I started in journalism many 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 years ago. Uh, obviously, I'm not a journalist now, but I remember that all of the classes I had to go through on that front, and and people seem to ignore that there's ethics behind all of this stuff. So, uh, which is is bizarre, but yeah, that's because we're in an era of fast-paced news. Everyone wants to get something out quickly, and you know, it's not properly sourced sometimes, or, or even proofed. So that's just 
unfortunately a side effect of that that culture now, isn't it? And if you fail at those ethics, you can go into PR. <laughs> <laughs> right. Many people have. <laughs> nice, nice. Um, so, yeah, like I say, a lot to discuss today. Um, but while, uh, you know, looking through today's real news, I saw a really interesting piece that City have given 250,000 employees the day off on Friday as a thank you, Sean. Does that include you too? It does indeed. That was a wonderful uh, bit of news to get yesterday. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's a, a good gesture, and I think a sign of um, sort of how companies are reacting to the COVID, um, the COVID crisis. So yeah, as you said, Mike Corbett, our CEO, came out yesterday and announced um, the day off for everybody who can take it. Otherwise, you get a sort of a day in lieu, but it's a I think it's, you know, it's a small, small thing, but it's a, it really does certainly help with uh, morale. And I'm not going to turn down a day off to go to the park and enjoy the sunshine. Absolutely. It's literally going to be a bank holiday. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> um, Just avoid those park knocks, Sean. Be careful. You might get snapped. Well, yeah. Well, thankfully, uh, in Ireland, we're, we, we don't uh, go out and socially shame each other for sitting in parks. So I'm a little, I feel a little safer than if I were in the UK or New York right now. But I've seen those certain parks that have drawn sort of social distance circles where you could, that, that's where you can sit in and, and, and that's where you know, you've got ample distance between everyone. Uh, I, I could be a way forward. That's yeah. true. In, in Germany, I've seen that they're making, in some cafes, they're making people wear pool noodles on their heads. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> saw a video of, a, I think it was Maryland in the US where there are, a restaurant is putting sort of inflatable tubes around the tables to enforce the uh, social distancing. I can beat that as well. There's one in Amsterdam that they've they've put uh, greenhouses, and that's where you have to sit inside. You know, Swift are going to be watching all these developments and deciding which they're going to do for Cybos. Do we want noodles on the head? That's going to be a different uh, Cybos closing party, then, isn't it? <laughs> Just keep to your circles. Yeah. <laughs> Several thousand people, all six feet apart. I'm not sure what sort of uh, space you would need for uh, to pull that off. I know that Boston place is pretty big. <laughs> it might work. <laughs> or back at the XL again. Yeah, back at the XL again. Yeah, well, look, that's a really cool thing, and um, you know, a great uh, not only a great story, but like you said, Sean, a great like uh, thank you to to all the staff. And uh, you wonder is uh, yeah, we've written a lot about kind of bank culture and and that nose to the grindstone way of working in the past and how maybe i think we wrote a feature in the last magazine about how some of those trends are forcing some top execs to leave uh, let's say the fintech or crypto world but do you think there is, is there not just because of the city move but is there a sign of things changing you know banks are going to have to start embracing this working remotely uh with the kind of need for a bit more automation they may start really investing in innovation going forward and Open and they're starting to up open up things like shared parental leave, more flexibility. Virginia, you love talking about bank culture, um, <laughs> not even the most positive way, but <laughs> a top tier bank kind of one step away from ping pong tables and bring your dog to work day. I mean, I, I tend to argue with bank people quite regularly over over my recent career in terms of of uh, innovation and how they try and foster innovation by making you know adding a pool to a ping pong table or a pool table or a foosball table, um, which I don't think is enough. Uh, flexible working, though, is, is definitely an important thing. And I think um, you will encourage a more diverse workforce if you do 
open your mind to having people work, you know, part-time from home. Uh, it certainly helps with childcare and a more equal balance and work-life balance um, between partners as well. So certainly I think there's, there's, a, there's a push around this. It's very closely linked to ESG. So uh, hopefully that message is being hammered home too. Um, in terms of governance and, and, and encouraging diversity on the S bit of ESG. So I think there's going to be more effort, hopefully, uh, across the banking industry to push that. And I noticed City also set up a new ESG um, subsidiary, investment banking subsidiary or something. I, I read, was it yesterday, Sean? I noticed that. That's uh, And you've got some sort of new sustainability client council as well, which is uh, quite interesting. But uh, certainly, I think there's there's a lot more push around, you know, proving that you're you're encouraging um, diverse workforces and, and flexibility in working is certainly important. So, hopefully, this crisis will will drive that point home. Yeah, I think. I mean, I uh, so I agree. I think, you know, there are superficial ways that you know banks or any major company tried to sort of look cool and down with the kids, and that was you know ping pong tables and all that um, sort of superficial stuff. But I think. What COVID has done, the sort of the shift to mass work from home, has probably acted as a catalyst um, and probably a really big proof point that the industry can probably be much more flexible than it thought it could be, um, and that the need to be tethered to the office isn't quite as strong. And actually, I think a lot of people, in particular senior management, has to come discover the joy of not having bananas commutes, right? Especially in the UK or. Um, you know, New York, where, you know, an hour or two each way on a train isn't unheard of, you know, getting those three, four hours back a day, I think a lot of people have come to really appreciate. So I think as things open up, I think you will see banks embrace much more of the flexibility because um, they've seen that we can run a bank um, with mass work from homes. And then you can really sort of start adopting those that much more quickly in the, into your culture. Aside from the poor people that are working on the fax machines. <laughs> Well, yes. <laughs> you could also make a big push to try to get rid of faxes too. That would be a nice end of the yes. cut off the 20th century finally. Quite. Because given them, most people don't, I mean, coming into workforce now would never have seen a bloody fax and let alone know how to operate one. It does seem a little bit odd. <laughs> I don't know how to operate a fax. Honestly, who knows how to work a fax? <laughs> I do. It's like a do. it's like a photocopy machine with a phone attached to it. I mean, they're they're fairly self explanatory, to be honest. I mean, do you have to do you have to for new grad new uh, entrants and graduate people? Do they have to go through sort of nineties workshops to uh, try and understand some of these these processes? It's crazy. They do, they do. You you laugh, but they're actually. I mean, and some of the technology they're using is so bloody antiquated, um, and it's the stuff I I tend to research and write about that it takes months, not weeks, to train somebody on something, which is is madness in this day and age. You should have a front end that's easy to use, for crying out loud. But some of these systems are so old that they I, they just look bizarre for somebody coming, you know, coming to, that's used to having a mobile phone that's uh, much more <laughs> much more sophisticated than a, the, the thing they use at work. It's, it's crazy in this day and age. It really is. And Virginia, you've actually heard that people are having to go in to receive faxes from, from clients. They are, yeah, yeah. There's quite there's there's a subsection, and I'm not going to name which one, of of operations teams that are there to man the faxes, and and the faxes are coming in from a lot of clients like hedge funds and smaller asset managers on the custodian side, and even on the on the hedge fund and asset manager side, they're sending the faxes. So uh, there's this group of of individuals, and and some of them are very you know, It's a small group. They're in empty open offices. 
and they're, they're there all day in this sort of eerie atmosphere, sending faxes and receiving faxes and just being very depressed, as far as I can tell from talking to them. <laughs> that does sound, that does sound a bit depressing. Incredible that we're spending time talking about new technologies and, and you still really got to... <laughs> Roll on digital <laughs> transformation. <laughs> Absolutely. Ooh, yeah, and, and that's... Uh, I got a really good uh, segue into um, some of the some of the latest news we've, we've done. So I'm just going to move on now to um, some of the big stories that that we've produced over the last week. Uh, Joe, first of all, I know it isn't um, quite a Finreg story, but uh, you wrote a great piece on on BlackRock and their their bid to make a lad in the investment operations language for custodians, as you put it. And that's uh, that's a huge trend at the moment, and we've had a lot of stories related to that. But you went one step further and actually had a really good chat with the head of Aladdin, didn't you? Yeah, it was it was a, a really interesting chat, and um, you know, it's slightly off the the what's it the, the FinRing angle, but it's you know it's important note to to what BlackRock are trying to do in in this investment operations sort of space. They're they're trying to become the sort of core infrastructure used by you know not just custodians but other asset managers and banks and pension funds and wealth managers. Um, and this is you know for a range of sort of uh, for functions, risk management, portfolio management. Um, data analytics you know this some some of the things that they're doing um and you know where they're branching out to you know if there's not a case for for blackrock to become a gcm i don't know what really will be because you know they are becoming almost a core infrastructure provider um and then you know this sort of falls into you know, what we're seeing with the wider industry of this sort of trend of front to back um services and and that's where sort of blackrock are sort of kind of positioning themselves as this um front to back infrastructure provider so i mean and if we try and sort of turn that around in, in, into a you know a, a finrig angle i mean will regulators you know start looking a little bit closer at this sort of front to back outsourcing trend uh, you know, and any sort of concerns they have with using a single provider um across their, their across their entire sort of functions yeah I guess that's why a lot of the custodians talk about this open architecture, don't they, Joe, where you can kind of uh, plug in various various parts. But it is certainly interesting that BlackRock, you know, an asset manager, is, is is putting the services out there, which is ultimately kind of helping uh, other asset managers, isn't it, as well as the custodians? Indeed, yeah. It's it's, it's really quite a um, fascinating story to watch, and it'll be uh, you know even more interesting to know what, what other custodians, you know, come on come on board we've had being one million already they had their partnership with with blackrock last year um and the bmp uh, they also announced a, a sort of a new middle office um partnership where they'd use sort of aladdin as as the sort of investment source of data uh, investment book of records uh source of data um so be interested to know yeah what what the next custodian will be to 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 jump on the blackrock ship yeah, it doesn't sound like they're going to stop there. So I imagine um, you know, more announcements kind of throughout the rest of the year because those ones you just mentioned have all occurred in the last kind of uh, few months as well, haven't they? Of course. Yeah. There have been a few stories in the press calling BlackRock the new Goldman Sachs, which made me laugh. Um, I must say, I, I, I wouldn't say that their culture is anything like Goldman Sachs's culture. Like, neither is their technology approach. Um, but I would say, what's it? I mean, I call them the werewolf octopus. But um, <laughs> I would say, in terms of, of BlackRock, BlackRock's influence in the reg tech space, the FinReg space, I would say that they do have a fair influence already um, in terms of advising regulators and providing input. 
they certainly do have some clout on that side being such a large player in the market. And they do have to be somewhat careful. You mentioned our regulators concerned about provide technology providers of significant size. Yes, they are. Um, I'd say the European regulators and the FCA in particular have been quite concerned over that in the last, I mean, five to 10 years even have, have put out guidance around um, being able to switch off one service provider and move to another relatively seamlessly, which I don't know anyone that can do that at the moment, to be perfectly honest. But that's certainly something that is on the radar. So who knows? I guess BlackRock are going to come under some more scrutiny as well as having their uh, their, their awe in to, to, to shape FinReg as it, as it goes on. And there's a concentration risk as well, surely, isn't it, with the regu- that regulators might be concerned about uh, with Always, yeah. going to a single provider for... You know, all, all kinds of sort of data and trade services. Yeah, they like a competitive marketplace. They don't like dominant monopolies at all. So, the, yeah, I mean, I would the only. I think one thing to as we think through that. I mean, I think as Virginia said that the, the idea of outsourcing has been on reg- regulators' uh, radar forever. Honestly, I mean, the dear CEO letter is what, five, six years old at this point from the FCA. So I think that's always a constant concern um, <clears throat> for regulators and outsourcing arrangements and um, how you sort of recover from them and, if necessary. And I think probably the recent COVID experience highlights that even more uh, in terms of contingency planning and whatnot. So I think it certainly will remain uh, a key aspect of regulators' focus. And let's not forget the FCA has their operational resiliency um, consultation technically it was pended a little bit or delayed because of COVID, but that's, you know, it's absolutely a, a core focus from a UK perspective. So, so as we said, one of today's big topics is about whether COVID-19 is a kind of catalyst for, for modernization. Um, uh, uh, so along those lines, Joe, another story you put out this week was about how regulators might kind of collaborate with security services providers to actually modernize post-trade and perhaps form a, a new digital framework as well. Um, yeah, that, Will kind of lead into our, our bigger topics. So, what did you find in that story? Yeah, so so we you know we briefly talked about this on on previous episodes, but I think the important thing that sort of I took um, from from writing this piece is is what this experience would do for the overall digitalization agenda. So at the moment, you know, with various moves from 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 banks and other providers, uh, their their digital. Sort of innovations have been very focused on client experience as opposed to digitalizing the actual workflow um and you know that that will probably have you know probably have regulators a lot more engaged with um to digitize some of those um core functions i mean i think when you think about sort of how covid changes the digital experience or modernizes i think there are a few elements to this and certainly one we talked about it might have been the first episode was a much unloved sort of post-trade world, um, you know, sort of the requirement for wet signatures for dividend reclaims or account openings, um, which is sort of a known pain point for everybody, but don't, but no one ever cares about it either uh, until all of a sudden no one can see each other and you can't get signatures. So I think that's an area that you might see sort of custodians and market infrastructure collaborate to see how you can sort of digitize account opening. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have sort of where the SEC, CFTC, FCA, ESMA are involved in sort of modernizing meeting requirements or, again, looking at wet signatures or physical physical documents and where those can be shifted to a more 
online experience. So I think it sort of runs the gambit. And I think we, you know, Virginia and I talked about this last or whenever that for uh, for me, some of that post-trade stuff was really important because it would unkink uh, a lot of really bad or poorly designed workflows, but it's almost never has the attention of regulators. So it would be good, I think, if this, the COVID experience shined a light on that long enough for some of those changes to be made. I mean, I think I've, I've, I've said this many times. <laughs> it's been in my bugbear since I've been writing, you know, I've been researching and writing about the space and post-trade for about 20 years now. But good Lord, not much has changed in certain areas. Um, it, it, I tear my hair out when I, you know, end up doing research, you know, in a three-year cycle sometimes where something doesn't change and the same outputs from my research are the same they were three years ago. I just think, God, why, why are we not changing this stuff? We know the business cases. It'll save you money. It'll reduce risk but people still don't bloody invest in it honestly it drives me crazy but yeah. i mean that's the problem a lot of this post-trade stuff is the cost you know it's, it's been sucked up as a cost of doing business for too long that people don't really see the wood for the trees they don't see the costs they don't think about them that much aside from the people um you don't think about how much time is lost sometimes you don't think about the risk that you're adding to the process by having so many manual touch points and the regulators just they don't really understand the space, sadly, um, as has been demonstrated by some of the weird regulation that's come out over the years that needed to be adapted after the fact, um, after you know, there was some feedback from the industry. I think there's a lot of, of um, very niche areas across the post-trade spectrum, um, from corporate actions through to you know, clearing, and set, you know, clearing and settlement infrastructure and, and, and lots of different things that are hard, you know, they're hard to understand, hard to conceptualize, hard to transform because nobody really wants to spend on them. But I think regulators, regulators should, should pay attention, um, but they shouldn't have to regulate to change the market. The market should change because it needs to. <laughs> That's my, my two cents. I mean, I think we were joking earlier uh, about, you know, facts are still being used, but, you know, it's still absolutely the case, you know, transfer agents have you know, around the industry, I've spent, you know, millions of dollars to upgrade the the transfer agency experience. But at the end of the day, especially when you're dealing with funds distributed into Asia, you're still plugging into fax machines. So it's, you know, if you really want to digitize experiences, you need to get that, that last mile is really important or first mile in the case of, you know, investor flows. But either way, um, it's often that unloved section that can really sort of quietly revolutionize the the overall experience. And then it's also who's who's going to take the lead as well. Um, is it a responsibility of, of maybe a market infrastructure, or, or is it down to the individual banks that, that are looking to do it? Uh, and I sort of raised this as well because we, there was interested news um, uh, this week from from the DCCC who who have sort of announced two projects that they're. I think one of them is to uh, try and build. It's exploring whether they need to build a. Um, uh, an infrastructure to service digital assets and digital uh, tokenized securities, um, and that was Project Whitney, which is you know interesting choice of uh, <laughs> name for a project. Um, and the other one was Project Iron, and that and that was trying to build a um, uh, a clearing assessment infrastructure using sort of smart contracts for instant settlement um, and, and and sort of T plus T zero settlement. So you know that will be you know a, a, probably a major change. To the industry and maybe a, a motivator even to enhance this sort of digitization efforts across banks and, and and market participants yeah it's interesting i mean 
I'm old enough to remember when the you know the U.S. was a T5 market, I think. But and so and P2 T2 was only a, a couple of years old. But I think I think sometimes things get conflated, right? So T0 is entirely possible, and the DTC paper from a few years ago on the move to T2 illustrated it. It was just well, you know was the gain from T0 worth the extra the extra work? And at the time, the decision was you know it wasn't. So I'm not sure. You know, everyone talks about smart contracts, but like we have smart contracts today. They're called pro forma templates and then lawyers get their hands on them and then all of a sudden they stop being smart. So I think, you know, this sometimes we, I think as an industry, we need to think through where the pain points actually are um, and what, what are the changes we're actually looking to achieve. The market infrastructures are not the ones at fault in general. Um, and I would say a lot of the large players aren't the ones at fault, actually. I mean, it's the long tail of, of smaller firms. And it's not their fault. Mm. They have other priorities, right, that, that cause most of the problems. I mean, you, you may have, you know, 80% of your volume um, STP, but it's that back end of it that, you know, the, the, the smaller clients, that long tail of, of small fund managers or hedge funds or whoever you're dealing with, that just hasn't invested in automation. You know, they're not using formats, stand, you know, standardized formats. They're not using, um, they can't connect to APIs. They send things in spreadsheets. They spend, right. send things in narrative fields. I mean, how do you change them? I mean, that's that's the issue here. This is always the crux of the problem. This is why things like ISO 20022, God knows I don't want to start talking about messaging <laughs> standards at the moment, but it has, that's been around nearly 20 years now and people haven't adopted it just because there isn't a business case for a lot of these guys to adopt it because it costs a lot of money. So, right. I mean, you I'm get far enough out that you it. get far enough out that tail, you you end up, you know, swift messaging all of a sudden disappears too, which um, we all tend to forget as well. So, I think it is. I think the case for digitization is there, but it, you know, sadly, that's where incrementalism comes in and always sort of stymies some of these transform transformational uh, efforts. It, it does. I mean, you have to have a business case. And if you don't have a business case, you have to have some sort of stick. Um, and on the standards point, a lot of the problems we have is because things are let, allowed to coexist forever. And mm -hmm. people don't turn things off or, you know, force people to change their formats or force people to change what they're doing. Um, it's just unfortunate. You really have to have somebody there with a stick. And often that has to be the regulator because people are scared of the regulator. They're not scared of other people in the market, sadly. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, you look at like, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but you look at, you know, even things like the US payment system is basically like a pre-war system held together with like duct tape. And there's been no market impetus to fix that. And then, you know, and the, the Fed and whoever hasn't had any desire to really wade into it. And so now without that sort of, I think, top-down push, a lot of these initiatives are often found, flounder or founder. Do you think there's some processes though that, um, you know, there for a reason? Let's say, you know, you talked about kind of wet signatures, um, in-person meetings, but, you know, some documentation, if, if suddenly that becomes more digitized and, and we're working remotely, are then, then more cybersecurity risks that then need to be addressed as well? Yeah, I mean, I think, and I, that will be part of like the postmortem. I mean, obviously, some stuff's there because it's always been done that way. And I think there should be a view, you know, what's always been done that way versus, you know, there are security concerns around signatures on certain documents or notarization of stuff. So, and I, I think that's the balance that will need to be struck. But I think when you go out to things like in-person 
AGMs or in-person meetings, board meetings versus virtual board meetings. I think those sort of elements can absolutely adapt to the technology. And I think it's about striking the right balance. And then if you're concerned about fraud in a digital sense, working on anti-fraud measures there rather than going back to like a 19th century wax seal. I mean, KYC has has evolved. The fintech around it has evolved in the retail space, right? You can open an account um, by any, you know, payment service, all the new retail banks that have come out there. You can open an account without having to go into a branch ever. They don't have branches, some of them. So, I mean, if they can do that and you can just take photos of things, you can scan your face, you can do videos. I mean, all of these things that are going on in the retail world, you could equally apply to some aspects of securities, right? If you're wanting to onboard in, in the KYC sense checking that somebody isn't a politically exposed person by, you know, having a video of their face and uh, you know, facial recognition technology, I guess. I don't, and I'm sure we're, we're advanced enough in, in that front these days. But um, I, I'd say, obviously, the FBI is probably uh, listening to my, my discussion here. But uh, I think in terms of, of what we can do, I think there is opportunity in, in the reg tech space, but we just are slow moving on this side of the fence, right? Um, yeah. Retail banks have been threatened by new entrants, I haven't seen any startups in the investment banking front or, you know, even startup asset managers that are really threatening anyone, right? Aside from the wealth side, but. Right. Yeah. I mean, there aren't a lot of new entrants in the custodian world, let's be honest. So I think that's part of it. And I think the challenge is, I think you're absolutely right. Retail has been moving quicker on reg tech and general technology. Um, But as an industry, retail side is so segregated from the institutional side that it's often hard to sort of get that cross pollination on the tech. And then as, you know, institutions are naturally risk averse and no one's going to get, no one's going to outrun the regulator on stuff like KYC mm-hmm. and AML. So it does really need to be led um, and that, you know, that sort of push for more digitization needs to be blessed by a regulator because no one's going to go out on their own without that. I mean, KYC people joke about the fact that they, you know, they take risks um, as to which regulator, you know, which infraction, which regulator they're they're having an infraction against because of the cross, (laughs) I guess, the clashing between data privacy regs in one jurisdiction and, you know, KYC requirements in another where you're having to do cross-border business. It's a bloody nightmare for them. I I don't think it's it's easy. Um, And reg tech can help with some of it, but they can't help with all of it. Right. Um, I agree. Yeah, everything is very siloed, even by country. Um, by regulator. Oh yeah, I mean that's a whole. I mean we can discuss, spend a whole episode discussing the challenges of navigating overlapping and conflicting regulatory regimes. But that's that's a problem that's only getting worse, uh, not better. I think in the coming years. Well, I mean, which honestly is good news if you're a regulatory guy because it helps it helps guarantee a certain amount of employment. I, I say selfishly. <laughs> <laughs> the rise of nationalism and employment for Finreg. <laughs> And to move to move some of the, the innovation along, I mean, I've seen a lot more partnerships with fintech firms from, from the bigger players, uh, especially over the last few months as well. I know that's been accelerating for a couple of years or so, but it really seems to have picked up. Um, is that something you've, you've all seen as well? Yeah, I mean, I think you have seen it. And I think part of the reason you've seen it, uh, you know, the, the fintech model is sort of coming out of Silicon Valley or, you know, disruption. I think a lot of fintechs have come to realize that disrupting financial services is a lot harder than disrupting local taxi companies. So you run into regulators that have teeth and rules that are there for a reason. So I think a lot of fintechs um, have found and, you know, traditional institutions have found working together, you know, leveraging legal compliance uh, expertise from a a big institution while deploying the tech is sometimes a, a, 
a, an easier path to market. You've also got to bear in mind the vendor risk management side of things as well, though. I mean, investing in and, and bringing in-house a vendor is easier if they're a small vendor. Um, because, you know, if you look at vendor risk management documentation, it's it's massive. <laughs> and it being onboarded by a large institution can take bloody months. I mean, it can take over a year for some. Um, and obviously, risk aversion increases the more, you know, the more important, the more visible the function, the more um, risk comes into play. So nobody gets fired for using a household name, but they could get fired for you know, betting on a small fintech in one area, unfortunately. But I've also frequently joked um, that you can, you know, one way to look at Cybos is that it's actually basically one huge fintech conference for people looking to get snapped up by uh, big institutions. Yeah, it's like fintech dating, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> But there hasn't been a lot of high-profile cases of banks acquiring fintechs. Is that because there's a culture thing at the end of the day? I think a lot of investments get made behind closed doors. Uh, so you don't see it publicly, but the investment certainly happens. No, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, I, mean, I think there are. I mean, you do see big announcements when fintechs partner to leverage a banking license. But I think on the you know, the sort of meat and potatoes tech side, it's a lot more below the radar and just adopting technology and becoming a client as much as it is purchasing outright. Yeah. And sure, I'm not sure if we discussed this on the last podcast, but certainly the, the proximity announcement um, was, was huge and well received from the industry. Yeah. I mean, that's a, I mean, that's an example of sort of fintech in reverse, if you will, almost. So that was a, something that was developed in-house at City um, in our, our custody division that leveraging city's larger city ventures and uh, d10x sort of fintech incubator approach uh was formed as a stand was sort of built out uh and then the decision was made that to be a truly competitive uh product it would need to be spun out from city so that announcement was just a couple of weeks ago yeah so i think that's a big you know a lot of a lot of banks we all like to pretend we're technology companies but it's a it's an interesting proof point of you know one of us actually sort of delivering a fintech uh, and disruptor to the marketplace. Well, it's nice to see new entrants in spaces like issuer communications because really it is a sleepy area in terms of fintech. I mean, a lot of the startups from Silicon Valley and the like, uh, even in, from New York or you know some of the fintech hubs in Europe, they, they don't get excited by things like corporate actions or you know some of the less well understood, as I referenced before, areas of the, the market. So coming from people that actually have been doing the job and been banging their head on the table, um, it, it's 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 good to see that, in my opinion. Uh, what I thought was what was quite interesting, actually quite refreshing. I mean, not to toot sort of city's horn too much, is but they, you know they saw a, an industry wide problem and you know they created something uh, out out of, out of this innovation lab. Um, to not only benefit them, but to, to benefit the wider industry, uh, and then and then to spin that off with uh, and, and make it sort of more open to to other players. Yeah, I mean, I think to sort of bring this almost full circle, I think that's the sort of innovation. I mean, this is you know, I've spent twenty something years in the industry, but I'm aware that custody banking and post trade is like the least sexiest part of finance out there. So, I think these innovations, you know, are likely to be driven by ideas from people. Um, understand these sort of pain points that aren't very apparent to the rest of the the industry or broader broader society and i think that should be it could be interesting to see if we see other um, pockets of this sort of innovation from within if you will hopefully we will <laughs> i'm certainly hopeful i mean it's, it's good to lead the way there but i mean i would say one of the challenges though is is getting innovation teams internally to work with product teams and them not to be fighting each other it's, I mean, again, I bring it down to culture, but there are some issues in certain banks because of that, unfortunately. But, um, 
you know, obviously doing the exciting things, but trying to solve a, solve a boring problem is, is not easy, right? Right, for sure. Yeah. This has been a great uh, podcast for City, Sean, that's for sure. We've, uh... Yeah, I appreciate it. <laughs> well, <laughs> been Sean's contact. We need to say 10 nice things about City in every podcast. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with the fact that this podcast is on City's uh, website as well, is it? <laughs> we're, just promoting, we're just promoting it for everybody, you know, making, <laughs> making it widely available. <laughs> yeah, looking at widely available. The, the feedback so far has been brilliant. Um, we looked through the analytics and we've had about, you know, listens from 50 odd countries. It's, uh, it's been really uh, a great start to, to the show. And uh, we do always welcome the feedback and any suggestions and topics you might want to hear next week. Uh, guys, uh, obviously, the, um, the US and the UK are big listeners. Can you guess uh, the other countries that kind of make up the, the top five? France? Uh, yes. <laughs> Ireland, Ireland, one. Sean, I, I figured you had the, the whole family, the whole street getting uh, getting. Oh yeah, no, my entire apartment block logs in every day. Now, <laughs> downloads it, so it's a it's a neighborly uh, gesture on their part. <laughs> well, if it's the apartment, then they should be hearing it live as well. So repeating <laughs> it when they listen to it back. Where's the most far flung place, John? Um, <laughs> let me. Uh, I I could I could write it, but I'm not very good at saying it. Um, so you're going to put me on the spot there. K- Kyrgyzstan. Um, Turkmenistan? Turkmenistan, yeah. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, wow, I did that. We had fans out there. One one listener out there, actually. <laughs> My God, Finrang really is everywhere. <laughs> it is. And to make up for not being able to pronounce the country name, I'm going to have to reach out to them and offer them a spot on the show next week, I think. So <laughs> we're out there to get in touch. <laughs> you have to talk to their regulator as well. You can't make it... Uh... Uh, you got to make it so that everyone understands everything that's going on. The most niche episode so far, that'll be, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> the Kirkmanistan special. My <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, look, um, thanks, everyone, again, for for, for tuning in. And um, Finberg expert, Joe Parsons, uh, Sean and, and Virginia, yeah. uh, thanks thanks for your time again today. Um, uh, Sean, where can we find your, your content outside of this show? Outside the show, as always, check out City Securities Services at City Velocity backslash Insights. Thanks, Sean. And Virginia, you've been teasing some new projects. Uh, where can people find you and what's, what's going on with you at the moment? Yes, you can find my research and my upcoming research on www.fintechfirebrand.com. So I'm setting up, I've set up a new research outfit. So uh, I'm covering capital markets, technology, developments and trends. So come and check it out. Exciting stuff and a cool name and a cool logo as well. I saw that. Thank you. <laughs> so thanks again, everyone. Uh, and as always, get in touch if you have any uh, feedback. And please do subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star rating if you think we deserve it. But for now, thanks for listening. Until next time. You were listening to There's Always a Fimreg Angle podcast with Global Custodian.